Welcome to Out With Dan, the podcast that spotlights and examines the voices of LGBTQ authors, characters, and our allies. Together, we lift our voices and we tell our stories. I'm Dan White. Join me as I chat with this week's author. Hello, and welcome back to Out With Dan. Today, I'm excited to be sharing a chat with Catherine Shellman about her new book, Last Call at the Nightingale. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for having me today. My pleasure. I told Catherine earlier that I love mystery and I love jazz and I love the Roaring Twenties. And this was just such a wonderful package. Loved, loved, loved the book. Is there a particular reason you chose that era to set the book in? Set the book in. Well, my first series, The Lily Adler Mysteries, is set in Regency England. So early 19th century. It's kind of like like you take your favorite baby BBC or Netflix costume drama, but instead of marriage, everyone's worried about murder. Oh. So it's got a very specific vibe with like, you know, you've sort of the proper society with like the murder <laughs> happening underneath. Um, but it's all very upper-class characters. So okay. I wanted to try and write something that was uh, dealing with a very different set of people. I wanted to try working-class characters. I wanted to do something that was a little more modern, that was in the United States. And as soon as I sort of had those parameters in mind, the main character, Vivian, just sort of walked into my brain fully formed with like this very forceful personality. And as soon as that happened, I knew like, oh, she's got to live in the 1920s. Like that is, <laughs> that is where a person like that is is placed in time. Um, and the same thing happened with a few of the other characters too. So I was like, okay, we're writing a jazz age book. That's what we're doing this time. <laughs> I love it. I love it. For all of Vivian's strengths came her sister's timidness, mm -hmm. um, maybe a little bit of shyness. Uh, Florence reminded me of something I heard growing up in the South, which was more used as that person knew their place. So Florence was the kind of person who didn't get out of her class. She thought mm -hmm. she should be here. At least that was my interpretation. And her sister was just the opposite. Her sister was the, the risk taker, the one who went out and fought. Yet in all of that, Florence has a loving capacity to keep the home fires burning. She may complain about it, but it, it gave a wonderful two-dimensional, you know, they these characters were exact opposites, but they were so fun. Well, the funny thing about that is, I mean, Vivian's obviously the main character, and she's the one who is, like you said, she's out there. She's the risk taker. She's ready to, to break the rules and go find a good time, even if she's not supposed to. And Florence is a little more timid. She's worried about, you know, crossing those lines. She's worried about doing things she's not supposed to. And she she might want things to be different in her life, but she's a little more of a homebody. She's more of a rule follower. And the funny thing writing it was personality-wise, I'm more of a Florence. Like if we're doing a personality <laughs> quiz, like I would score Florence on there. I'm a little more of a homebody. I'm, I'm not, you know, like, oh, I'm going to go out and just break all these rules and have a good time. I'm like, you know, maybe I'll go out a little bit, but then I'll go home and take a nap. Like, <laughs> so it was, I think writing Florence, I think she, I really didn't want her to turn into a caricature of like the disapproving older sister. Um, 
but the fact that I had that like that very strong personal identity uh, with her uh, made her, I think, a little easier to write. But it also made Vivian very fun to write because the contrast was there. Like, okay, what would I not do in this situation? <laughs> Vivian's gonna do that. Vivian would do that. <laughs> I love it, and you know, you're right. I mean, somebody has to pay the rent, right? And, and it really comes down to something, and especially set in the 1920s opportunities for women were so very limited and they were so relegated to second, maybe even third class citizens that a Florence had to be there because someone had to make sure the rent was paid. Right. Vivian and was trying to get through the glass ceiling, which was already really low, but she really wanted to do something. Mm -hmm. And she does something in the book, which is so fun because she's, you go along for the ride with Vivian and Vivian gives us a good ride. Yes. And even she's not sure where she's going to end up at the end of it. <laughs> no. And her fluidity was so beautiful to read as well. It's just who she is. She enjoys women. She enjoys men. She enjoys going out with men, going out with women and just enjoying all the way around. That was something that was very heartfelt. We ne I never viewed Vivian as anything except solid, and I liked that. I think she she's a character who really knows who she is. She might not really know what's going to happen if she makes X choice versus yes. Y choice, and you know, for for a character who's very her life is very precarious as a working class girl in New York in the 1920s, um, and. Florence feels the same way. Like both of them, their lives are precarious and they react to that precarity very differently. Like Florence is really like, I've got to double down on being respectable. I've got to double down on doing my work and keeping my head down. Whereas Vivian has more of a, you know, if everything's so precarious, why don't I just go out and do whatever and see what happens as a result? Like the, it could be good, it could be bad, but it probably won't end up any worse than things already are. Um, and I think there's a degree to which both both ways of handling that sort of difficult lifestyle are valid. Like you said, you need someone holding down the fort at home, mm. but you also need someone who's willing to go out and take those risks and, and bust through that glass ceiling and see what happens on the other side. That's very true. And I think it, I think it holds forth in life today as well. There is nothing wrong with being a homebody or being that person who's serious about life. There's also nothing wrong with that person who is let's see where the chips fall. Right. I'll deal with it. And of course, when you have confidence, you can deal with it. Mm -hmm. uh, life gives us all kinds of possibilities and your characters have chosen different possibilities. And it's not just the two sisters because it's, we see B's dreams of what she wants to do with life. And we see how that unfolds through the book. And of course, as I said earlier, jazz does play such a big part in my life. I'm a, a huge jazz collector of music. So it's like, I just love that. Yes. So I was like, I could just hear the band in the background. <laughs> I would always, before I was writing, I had like a little playlist of songs I would listen to to sort of get myself in the right mood. Um, so I name check a lot of songs in the book while they're at the, at the speakeasy at the Nightingale, just because the music from that era was so it was just so fun, so fantastic. And the music was pushing a lot of boundaries too, in terms yes. of what people were writing about, what they were singing about. You know, there's, um, it just, it reflects so many of those cultural moments that were happening then in terms of 
changing roles in society and that sense of really like in the 1920s, I think everyone, the, the culturally all across the board, people had this sense of let's just go out and see what happens, which was a real, um, a real response, I think, emotionally to World War One having happened. Yes. So yes. there was just this kind of collective trauma response almost of people saying this was terrible let's just go out and have some fun and not worry about it because we don't know what's going to happen next. Um, That's true. It led to a lot of very interesting cultural shifts and, you know, great music and some weird, weird things happening. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's so funny because we had, you know, World War One was, was so horrific and then comes along, you know, prohibition. And there are all these things to keep people separate I mean, if you were well-to-do, there was plenty of booze forever. But if you oh, were poor... Gosh, they stocked up before Prohibition went to a bank. They just filled their basements with booze. And like, all right, we're set. <laughs> it's like going, you know, it, having grown up in North Carolina, it's like going to the liquor store on Saturday because you know it's closed on, on Sunday. Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I had... I loved honor. And honor is is a character in and of herself and she is such a delight did you enjoy writing her i loved writing her she was so much fun because like you said she knows who she is and she just owns it across the board she is never uh pretending to be someone else mm -hmm. she holds her cards real close to the chest like she mm -hmm. does not tell everyone everything that's going on and she does not she's not necessarily always honest with everyone in her life but she's never uh, dishonest about who she is and, and the type of person that she is. Um, but I also, it was very interesting writing her because you only see her in this book in the context of the Nightingale, which is this world she's created for herself mm -hmm. and her customers that is so separate from sort of the, the daytime world. Like everyone's leaving their daytime lives behind for a little bit and coming to this speakeasy where kind of anything goes. Mm -hmm. And it's this very, very free, um, very affirming environment for everyone there. But there's always that sense of it's just here. You know, yes. if we if we were out in in our everyday lives, like the rules apply there, even if they yes. don't apply here. So it's it's very interesting writing honor solely in that context, but having that sense of, okay, if you saw her in another context, her life would be very different. And, yes. and you you know, that's why she created this place. That's why she has this club and has her little her little world that she runs with an iron fist because that's where that's where she can be who she is and that's where her customers can have that freedom too. So and, and we just finished writing the second book. Um, oh my, my, I just finished writing it. My editor has it right now. And you see honor sort of outside of the, the context of the nightingale a little bit. So you get a little more into that. Okay, what does it mean to be, you know, this very very out, very confident lesbian woman in the 1920s, not necessarily in this safe space that you've created for yourself. Well, and she is a businesswoman in this book, first and foremost, and she's yeah. a very good businesswoman. She's, she doesn't take her responsibility lightly. She takes it very responsibly. And that's a nice thing to read. You know, one of the things that we so often think in American society is that gay rights only came about in the 60s with Stonewall. Thank goodness for Stonewall. Right. But there was an enormous, an enormous culture in the 1920s 
where gays, lesbians, bisexuals, it didn't matter. They had spaces. They may not have been out on the street, but they had spaces that they could go to and feel safe. Of course, you might get raided. That was always the case, mm -hmm. but hell, they raided gay bars into the 1990s. So it ain't anything new. Right. There's you they they really created a lot of those safe spaces for their community, yes. especially in cities like New York City. If you went to Greenwich Village, like you knew that essentially every speakeasy you could find was basically a gay bar by like yes. modern standards like that. Yes. They had those communities were 100 percent in existence and it was a very deliberate um, cultural movement in those communities to create safe spaces and to explore those identities and give people a chance you know, to, to be themselves in that context. And there was a lot of not open cultural acceptance because right. there, there certainly wasn't open no. cultural acceptance no. of queer communities, but it was part of that, you know, we're all doing a few illegal things anyway. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite things I found when I was researching was in the 1920s, there would be these giant hotel ballroom events that they called uh, civic and masquerade balls. And they were they were essentially giant drag balls yes yeah. that had thousands of people in attendance and it would be people from the queer community but also people who were just there to have a good time and they didn't they weren't queer they didn't consider themselves part of the community but it was it was the fun social event that was happening <laughs> that weekend so people would turn up and that's right it's just you know those those communities were there i think there's they were underground in a way that they were yes. not later in the 20th century when a lot of those of those communities said like no we are going to we're going we're to going be to, out and proud we're going to be out and proud we're going to be part of the public community not just the private one um but i think those private communities really laid that groundwork i agree so a a strange question i think maybe i don't know maybe it's suddenly strange in my mind so um honor and silence is there a play on words there so to speak it's was it intentional or is it just in my mind? I mean, a little bit. Yeah, I <laughs> I think that there is, you know, there, there's a there's a real sense at the Nightingale that everyone's keeping each other's secrets and everyone has to there's, a, there's an implicit understanding that if you are here, you are on board like you right. are not you are not talking once you get home. Right. Um, so those those sense that sense like the the names are not. I think they weren't initially deliberate, but after I named them, I was like, oh yeah, that might have been subconscious. <laughs> good. It's not just me. Okay. I'm good with that then. <laughs> I, of course, uh, was cheering for Leo the whole way. I mean, there are, just so everyone knows, there are men in this book as well. So, <laughs> of course, Danny is so delicious and so wonderful and such an integral part. He's like almost like a little bit of glue that holds uh, mm -hmm. the the group together um, he yeah. certainly is on board and yeah. then I, I did enjoy leo very much as well i think there's a degree to which with every character you're like oh here's the ways in which you're a good decision and here's the ways in which you're a bad decision and i, I wanted everyone to have that because i mean leo and danny i loved writing them because in so many ways they're such they're such sweet characters like they're they got a lot of earnestness and a lot of just really um deep understanding of their world and the people in their world. And like you said, Danny in a lot of ways holds the Nightingale together because Honor is running a business, but Danny is sort of the bridge between her and and the customers. Yes. Um, 
and he's sort of he's the public face in a lot of ways of the nightingale. Uh, but they also, you know, they both have that edge. They live in this this world of crime and speakeasies and mobsters, and you can't be one hundred percent sweet and easygoing. <laughs> you're just living a life where everything is a little bit of a crime. <laughs> yes, I, I think that that's very very true, and that, I think that's one of that cohesiveness is one of the things that really uh, resonated with me. You feel like, I mean, there are lots of uh, twists and turns. So, and I do like that so very much. You you get to peel the onion layer on all of the characters. You see different sides of them. You see, like you say, the strengths and the weaknesses of these characters. And it's it's enjoyable to watch how it, how it unfolds. And I really, it, and, at the core is still a mystery, you know, and because somebody gets killed and we got to figure out who done it. And so, <laughs> there is a who done it there. I, I mean, you know, some guy has to go get himself dead and then all of a sudden we have a story. So, uh, yeah. but you did such a wonderful job with it. I so enjoyed it. Well, thank you. I tend to be, when I'm writing, I start, I start with characters. Like those, that's always really the place where I, I begin the story. And then who those characters are and how they interact with their world really drives the plot forward. So I want there to be a good mystery. I want it to be a good time. I want it to be fun to follow along with the characters and try to, you know, try to solve it maybe a little bit before they do and, and see if you can guess those twists before they're coming. Um, that's at least what I, what I love about mysteries is I love trying to get there at least a little bit before the characters do. Um, I I enjoyed it very much, and as I told you when we uh, when we chatted before we were started recording, that there were some places that I thought it was going one way and it went somewhere different, and it wasn't one of those that oh shucks really you tricked me. It's not that at all. It's just that the story is moving along, and their characters we get to see more of the character to realize who they are what they mean to the plot. And that was very enjoyable for me because it kept me interested. I'm so glad. For me, I'm the same way when I'm reading. I I will be along for the plot ride. But the reason I ever, I really ever stick out a book is because I get invested in the characters. So I wanted there to Precisely. be, I want these to be people that you really ended up, you know, caring about while you were mm -hmm. reading and sort of being interested to see like, oh, what am I going to find out about them next? Because there's, there's clearly something beneath the surface here that's <laughs> been revealed. I agree. And I think that the thing, one of the wonderful things you did, another wonderful thing you did with your characters are, I would love to see them again. I would love okay. to, to hear, you know, to hear where they go. And they each, they have a, a lot invested in this book. And so you're like, okay, they could go together separately or whatever, but they're interesting enough. I want to see more about them. So I'm looking forward to the next one. Oh, good. It's funny because while we were writing it, or while I was writing it, um, it was while my first book, The Body in the Garden, was what we call on submission. So basically we were seeing if a publisher would buy it, which was one of the reasons I wanted to write something completely different. Like I needed a break from, from that original series that I'd been working on while I was waiting to see if it would sell. Um, so while I was writing it, it was totally just my own thing. Like I need something different, I'm gonna write this. And I hadn't intended for it to be part of a series. It was just supposed to be a standalone book. <laughs> and you know, these these characters that I was having a lot of fun spending time with, and then, you know, it wrapped up and their, their story was done. Um, you know, not like, 
there, there's a sense that their story continues, but in their own world. Precisely. I was not planning Precisely. on writing a second book, but then when my agent and I were taking this one out to publishers to see if anyone would buy this one, she said, what would you think about, about pitching it as a series? Like if a publisher wants to buy it as a series, would you be open to that? So and of course I said, yes, because- No, you, no I just passed, I passed, I don't want to do that. <laughs> But then I had to sit down and figure out, okay, if we're writing another one, what happens? Because I hadn't, I hadn't had that in mind at all when I was writing it. So it was so much fun to, to go back to these characters and sort of see what they'd been up to and what bad decisions they were going to make. <laughs> well, I love it. This book is called Last Call. I never figure out where it goes. Last Call at the Nightingale. It is so wonderful. It just came out this month in June. So I'm very excited for you, Catherine. It was such a wonderful read. And I'm already looking forward to the next one. Hurry up. <laughs> next summer, it'll be here. <laughs> Yay, I love it. Oh, would you like, do you have social media or a website you'd like to share? Yes, absolutely. You can find me at my website, katherineshellman.com. I'm um, mostly on Twitter and Instagram in terms of social media as at Catherine Writes, but you can also find me on Facebook and Goodreads where it's just Catherine Shulman. Perfect. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Catherine, and I hope you the very best of success. Thank you so much, Dan. It's an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you. Hang on for me just a minute. Thank you for joining me with Out With Dan and see you soon. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Out With Dan. You can find more information about this podcast and its host at outwithdan.com, on Twitter at outwithdan, and on Instagram and Facebook at gooutwithdan. This podcast is hosted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and the theme music is provided by bensound.com. Join us again soon for the next episode of Out With Dan.